Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right, everybody, we're going to get started. All right. How's everyone doing tonight? That was the fastest the music has ever stopped. Usually it takes about 10 minutes or so. Thank you. Thanks to our uh, bartenders, uh, Dan and Sandy. Thanks to the KGB Bar. So the KGB Bar has been hosting this series here for, uh, oh, I don't know, 16, 17 years, maybe more. Yes. They have not come to their senses yet, and they keep hosting us here every uh, third Wednesday of the month, and uh, it's always free. So all they ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, support the bar, and you keep the series running, you keep the bar going. And this is a great bar. We love it here. We love having the series here. So, so please uh, buy a drink uh, at, the, at the break. So uh, my name is Matthew Kressel, and I'm the co-host of Fantastic Fiction at KGB here with Ellen Datlow. And uh, if it's your first time here... It's, it's a uh, speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, and uh, we, we try to feature uh, uh, luminaries and up-and-comers in, in the area of speculative fiction. Um, so we have uh, two amazing readers tonight. I say that, I say that every month, but I, always, I mean it, because we, we're very selective about who we, who we pick to read here. We have Wesley Chu, who's going to be our first reader, and Nicole Corner Stace. So we're really excited about them. Get, yeah, you can applause for that. Come on. That was like a, that was a pause there for a second. I was like, WTF? All right. Um, can you tell I had, I had one too many beers before I got here? Um, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, scatterbrained. Before we, uh, we start, I have a couple announcements. Um, next month, uh, June 17th, we have Dale Bailey. Simon Stranzis. July 15th, Jeffrey Ford, David Edison. August 19th, August 19th, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise. September 16th, Lawrence Connolly and Tom Monteleone. October 21st, October 21st, 21st. Jesus, how many drinks did you have, man? October 21st, Nathan Ballingrid and Fran Wilde. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. December 16th, Elizabeth Hand and C.S.E. Cooney. So uh, uh, every month uh, we have books for sale in the back. Tonight we have uh, Word Bookstore who's selling books for us. Word is uh, an awesome independent bookseller. They have a store in Greenpoint, Brooklyn and Jersey City, New Jersey. And uh, they're in the back there and they have... Uh, Nicole's uh, book, Archivist, and they, uh, Archivist Wasp, excuse me, and then also Wesley Chu's uh, three novels, uh, the three Tao novels. So uh, 
At the break, buy books, bring them up to the authors, and get them signed. Uh, almost done with my announcements. First things first, Clockwork Phoenix. It's an awesome, like, how would, how would you describe Clockwork Phoenix? It's Mike Allen edits this uh, genre magazine. I believe all the stories are mixed genre magazine. I believe all the stories, Ellen likes to edit anyone who's up here live. It's 3,000 words or less. They have a Kickstarter going on right now. Uh, there are flyers on the table. Please donate, if you can, to Mike Allen's Clockwork Phoenix uh, Kickstarter uh, fundraiser. The next volume in their critically acclaimed anthology series, Gathering Tales of Beauty and Strangeness. Check it out. No, seriously. Uh, I'm not doing them justice. They are actually uh, publishing a lot of really amazing stuff. Uh, finally, um, almost finally. Oh, do you want me to announce that now? All right, so for those of you who come with us to, uh, to Grand Szechuan after, after the readings, uh, it's gone. It's gone. Well, well, it's over. We're not going there. We're going to a place called. Uh, how, would, how do you pronounce it? Ravag? Ravage? It's a Persian restaurant. It's on First Street in St. Mark's. If you're coming to dinner tonight, please join us there, not Grand Szechuan. All right. My last announcement, I promise. And then, and then we'll, it's on First Avenue in 7th and 8th. All right. My publisher, Resurrection House, I have a book coming out in October, and they, they just... Thank you. It's called King of Shards. It'll be out October 13th. But this is not about me. This is about... The other authors from Resurrection House. Resurrection House is a relatively new publisher, and uh, my editor sent me a, a box of books, and then when I didn't say anything, he sent me another box of books. And my wife said to me, please give these books away. <laughs> we have a small apartment. So the first book I have is Archangel by Margaret Reed, and I'm going to give this book away to the first person who can name an anthology that Ellen Dallow edited prior to 2010. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Is that right, Green Man? All right, here you go. All right. Okay, one more Archangel. Um, same, same question. Name an anthology that Ellen's edited prior to 2010. Anyone? Yes. I, I don't even know what she said, but <laughs> I couldn't hear. Uh, uh, the next one I have is uh, Dale Bailey's collection, The End of the End of Everything. Now, if, if you have read his uh, short story that was on Tor.com, which, uh, did, you, did you edit that one? Yeah. The uh, Dale Bailey story, amazing story, really dark, really creepy, I love it. Dale Bailey's an amazing horror writer. This is his uh, collection. Um, anyone name? Again, same question. Back there, Sam. Yes. Alien sex, all right. Yes. Oh, all right, we'll make oh, it tough. Like all right, now this is the last one, and then we'll get to our readers. It's, uh, it's the anthology called 13, and it's uh, stories of uh, transition. Uh, Mr. Uh, Richard Bowes, who's here, has a story in there. 
uh, Liz Argall, um, let's see who's in here, Daryl Gregory, uh, Alex Daly McFarlane, um, there's no Edgar Poe in here, Cat Rambo, um, all right, oh, Fran Wilde, AC Wise, Christy Yan. All right, how about that? One of Richard Bose's novels. Yeah. Dust Devil Down a Quiet Street. You're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. You're totally right. All right, enough, enough preamble. I've, I've, I've gone on long enough here. Our first, our first author is Wesley Chu. Wesley is the author of five novels and a 2015 nominee for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. His debut, The Lives of Tao, won the, won the Young Adult Literary Services Alex Award and was a finalist for the Goodreads Choice Award for Best Science Fiction. His next series, Time Salvager, published by Tor Books, is scheduled for release on July 17th, 2015. Here's Wesley Chu. What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming. My name is Wesley Chu. I know Matt already told you everything, but I'm not smart enough to ad-lib, so I might repeat myself a little bit. Um, I'm the author best known for The Lives of Tao, the Tao series, and I have a book coming out with Tor in July. We've already said this, actually. See, what happens is, speaking in public is like my second worst fear, and, uh, but, but reading, reading to an empty room is like my third, so... <laughs> So there's like a lot of emotions. Oh, getting a job. <laughs> so thank you for not for helping me not have a job. So I appreciate that. So the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a scene for you from the Time Salvager series, and that's all I'm gonna tell you. Are you sure you weren't sent by the boys from the Praetorian Society to give old Titus one last tug of his beard before he goes off on his final light burst? Titus 2.3, grand juror of Darkside Prime, having lived 155 Venusian years, was the oldest man on all of Venus. He was the foremost inventor of his generation and once considered the second brightest mind of the century. Once meaning he had just been recently been bumped down to third by some upstart 19-year-old girl named Priestley. That was fine with Titus. He was tired of being the smartest guy in every fucking party anyway. The stranger blocking his path to his honorary light burst craned his head back and looked up at the needle-shaped rocket scheduled to take off in the next 10 minutes. I assure you, Grandeur, as great of an honor as it is being given the light first voyage, flying into the sun is probably one of the worst ways a person could die. As soon as your heat shield, I know what happens, boy! I designed this flaming contraption! It's tradition here! Send his old shits off this way! Blaze of fucking glory! Titus huffed. I've taken four life extensions already. That's a record, by the way. Most granted any Venusian. And frankly, my damn back's too tired to hold me up anymore. I've done more than anyone in three lifetimes, and if those dumb jerk-offs want to push me out, well, I don't have the energy to argue anymore. The two stood at an impasse on the platform, 
even as the light burst thrusters smoked and began its pre-ignition sequence. Titus really should be buckled in by now. Five kilometers away, watching safely in their observation tower, his family, friends, and peers were all waiting for him to commit suicide. <laughs> Your mind is still as sharp as ever, Titus, said the stranger. Address me as Grand Juror, boy. I've earned the title. As you wish, Grand Juror. I am here to offer you an opportunity to continue your work. Are you sure you're not from the Praetorian? I assure you I am not, Grand Juror. If you do not believe me, then by all means, step into the light burst and be on your way. I won't stop you. However, my scans have confirmed that you are still healthy and may live for several more years. If you wish to put those to good use, then you should come with me. Titus hesitated. He had already said goodbye to his husband and two wives. He had held court for his grandchildren and played with his great-grandchildren one last time, making sure they all realized he wasn't returning from his voyage. The boys at the society even threw him a nice party. Everything felt pretty final. Sometimes, an old guy just had to recognize when the end credits were rolling by. Still, the opportunity the stranger presented was interesting. After all, a couple more years was nothing to sneeze at. Uh, but there's also the matter of tradition. Isn't this what he was supposed to do as an honor, elder honored citizen of Venus? What if word got out that he skipped out on his own light burst? It would be a scandal. Excuse me, Grandeur, but your time is running out. The light burst is going to take off in the next six minutes. I need to be away from the blast radius when it takes off. Regardless, you need to be on that ship or with me. Don't rush me, boy, Titus snapped. Do you know who I am? Yes, Grand Juror, you are. I was being rhetorical. This is a big decision to make. I don't like being rushed. Where are we going anyway? A place that needs your skill and intelligence. A place where we can continue to do good. So can I assume you will come? Assume all you want. I'm still thinking. How did you get past security anyway? You know, I designed this entire launch bay. Caught professional, professional curiosity, so in my next life, I can build a better system to keep creepy assholes like you out. This is a private party, after all. Your two honor guards at the door do not know I am here. Really? Guards, get your lazy asses in here! The stranger sighed. I really wish you didn't do that. The two royal-clad honor guards came running into the room, both carrying their battery tridents. Their insect-like armor, more ceremonial than functional, were modeled after a type of old earth beetle that used to be worshipped as gods. The two men, however, were elite warriors specifically chosen to honor Titus 2.3's light burst. Stand aside, Grand Juror, one of the guards said, leveling his battery trident at Stranger. For a second, Titus feared that the stranger would use him as a human shield and that he would die at the base of his own light burst ship before even having the chance to kill himself properly. <laughs> that would have been the final indignation. <laughs> to his pleasant surprise, the stranger did not stop Titus from waddling off to the side to safety. The honor guard aimed his battery trident and fired a lightning arc at the stranger. The stranger tilted just a couple of centimeters to his left and let the arc shoot harmlessly past his head. You have really good reflexes, Titus observed, admittedly entertained. 
the second honor guard charged in closer and fired his trident as well. Titus's chest puffed up a little. He recognized one of his own inventions. It was a kinesis spear, one of his later pup babies that could wrap a kinetic field around an object and manipulate it. He watched as the blue field shot out and enveloped the stranger. Then, to his surprise, nothing happened. The field that was supposed to surround the guy just popped like a bubble. You must, must have a defective spear, Titus commented, his face turning a little red. Then his mouth dropped when a strange yellow crackle of energy leaped out of the stranger. The kinesis spear exploded in honor guard's hand, and then the stranger seemed to have somehow teleported or moved really, really fast next to the guard. There was a clumsy exchange of fists, and then the honor guard flew into the air and slammed into the wall on the far side of the silo. The remaining guard fired again, this time his lightning arc hitting the stranger square in the chest. But the blue arc fragmented harmlessly off the stranger's yellow field. A similar yellow surge followed, an invisible force struck the honor guard, cracking his chest plate in half. The impact slammed the guard into one of the railings. The stranger turned to Titus. I'm sorry that had to happen, Grandeur. If you do not wish to come with me, I will not force you. Titus harumphed. You young men always thinking with their dicks and biceps. <laughs> All right, well, now you've piqued my curiosity. If I go with you, what's, what's my guarantee that what you're offering is true? Would you like a cyanide pill before we leave? <laughs> if you change your mind, you are free to take the pill and still commit suicide. <laughs> Titus looked at the light burst. T Titus looked as the light burst began its final sequence, 60 seconds before they were both burned to a crisp. <sighs> it, was too late to, it was too late to get away and too late to get in the rocket. It was the story of his life, always taking way too long to make his decisions. Oh, fine, he grumbled, though I think it's too late. In a split second, the stranger grabbed Titus and cradled him close to his body. Just as the rocket ignited, the stranger and Titus launched up the tube as if they had their own invisible rocket strapped to their asses. They shot straight through the launch opening and cleared the planet. A few minutes later, in the black depths of space, Titus and the stranger watched as a spark of light erupted from Venus's surface, leaving a thin yellow trail. They floated for a few minutes and they floated for a few minutes, watching his coffin disappear toward the sun. Like watching my own damn funeral, Titus smoked grumbled. Now what? Why are we still here? It's making me dizzy. Makes me want to shit my pants. <laughs> Where are we going next? He paused. How are you doing this? The stranger smiled for the first time. Please stand by. We will need to wait until we are cleared to jump back. Go figure. You hurry me up and then make me wait. How flaming rude. What, what do you mean jump back anyway? To the future. Titus wasn't surprised. He had surmised as much when the stranger wielded all those fantastic powers. Holy hell, I knew it. Talk about bearing the lead. You know, boy, you should have just opened up with that line. I'd hop in a sack with you right away. Instead, you beat around the bush and wasted my time. By the way, do you frumps from the future have cures for all my maladies? Apologies, Grand Juror. There is no cure for old age. Fuck! <laughs> Titus paused. It, is the future nice at least? Like, 
like a utopian paradise? The stranger shook his head. I hate to disappoint you. Fucking fuck! I, I might as well stay in the rocket then! Would you like your cyanide till now or when we get there? Thank you. That scene is from actually not the book coming out in July, but the sequel coming out next May. I would tell you the name, but I, that's still a, a TBD right now with my editor, who's right over there. Marco, say hi. So the next piece I'm going to read for you will probably need a little bit of a synopsis. Uh, it's, it's from the Lies of Tao. In this scene, my main character, Rowan Tan, has just been inhabited by an alien, and he doesn't know it yet. So this is the first time they actually communicate. It was well past 10 p.m. by the time Roland left the office. Heels dragging, he trudged out of the building and made the long walk to his parking garage. He picked up the pace as he walked the six long blocks to his car. Now, he had the option of parking closer at the Grand Park garage, but parking there costs 30 bucks. That's like two pizzas. So he was resigned to making the long trek to the further away but cheaper garage. He continued south on Wabash and crossed the street, hearing the rumblings of the train as it passed nearby. Suddenly, Rowan's highly attuned sense of self-preservation began to let him know that it wasn't happy. Something didn't feel right, and he fidgeted as his eyes started up and down the street. It was, it was deserted except for a homeless guy crossing the intersection, and there was no one behind him either. Now, this part of the loop was poorly lit and a little rougher than the business district, district just a few blocks north. Then, the homeless guy changed directions and moved onto an intercept course. Rowan sighed. He had learned early on to always keep a few dollar bills on him to give to beggars. It was the easiest way to get rid of them. He handed a buck over before the homeless guy even said a word. Here you go, Rowan said hastily and tried to pass him. Thanks, boss, homeless guy replied, shifting to his left to block Rowan's path. Look, man, I'm hungry. Dollar ain't gonna buy much. Let me get a few more for a meal. He stepped in really close. Rowan could smell the faint traces of liquor and a stale aroma of unwashed clothing. Sorry, Rowan mumbled and tried to pass him again. The homeless guy continued to block his path and gave Rowan a hard shove. I'm just asking for a couple bucks to eat, man. Not one for confrontation, Rowan turned into a side alley and immediately regretted his decision. <laughs> Alleys were where bad things happen and he, just, and he just did the exact thing the idiot's survival guide to the city would tell him not to do. Oh, oh, I can't flip the page. He it was a dead end. Rowan turned around and faced the homeless guy, slowly retreating. All right. How much you need for a meal? The homeless guy grinned. Price just went up, boss. You've gone hurt my feelings. Then he became a mugger as he pulled out a knife. It's gonna cost you your cash, your train pass, that bag you're carrying, hell, everything you got. Rowan fought the rising panic climbing up his throat as he stumbled backward. 
How did he get himself into these situations? Look, he stammered, barely getting the words out. Let's talk this over. I can, I can give you my money, but this is my work bag. I need the stuff in it. I'll, I'll get in trouble. Don't think you're in trouble now? This ain't no negotiations, asshole. Tell him he can have the money, but you are keeping your bag. Rowan looked confused. What did you say? What's wrong with you, boss? God, you're dumb. Give me your stuff or I stick you. Rowan retreated until his back bumped up against the dumpster and he began to hyperventilate. What kind of a mugger uses a knife? It's almost insulting. Listen carefully. There are some wine bottles at your feet. Pick them up. Who is this? What's going on, Rowan cried. Your feet. Bottles. Pick them up. Now. The mugger advanced. I'm losing my patience with you, Tubby. You're going to be a fat dead man any minute. Rowan looked down at the ground and he saw several empty wine bottles. He picked up one in each hand and he brandished them in front of him. Hold them by the neck. The neck, the skinny part. Rowan hastily switched his grip. Stay back, he warned. The mugger paid him no attention and continued to advance. He was no further than a few feet away now. Break the bottles and wheel them in front of you. For a split second, Rowan saw an image of a black armored gladiator standing in an arena holding two swords, one held high over his head and the other in front of his chest. Now, he didn't know who, what was going on or, or who was talking, but he was so scared right now he did whatever this voice said. He took the two bottles and he smashed them together. Thunk! They didn't break. <laughs> what the? Rowan looked down and he tried again. Thunk! Thunk! The damn bottles wouldn't break. Oh, for the love of... Rowan gritted his teeth and he tried once more. Thunk! Thunk! The two bottles finally shattered into two jagged, into jagged shards and he waved them in front of him triumphantly, trying to imitate the already fading image of the gladiator. Good. Say something mean. What? Threaten him. You, you give me all your money, Rowan yelled. <laughs> that is not what I meant. The mugger did a double take. What? I'm robbing you. You give me all your money. Not anymore, Rowan cried. I'm robbing you. You can't rob me. That's not how it works. Now, the mugger no longer seemed so sure of himself and retreated a few steps. Now, the two, of these, the two of them stood very far apart, both harmlessly waving their respective weapons at each other. Every time Rowan advanced, the mugger retreated. And every time the mugger moved forward, Rowan scampered backward. They just began swearing at each other. Come on, you fat asshole, the mugger snarled. You're a jerk and you fucking stink, Rowan answered. Attack. <laughs> Ruin's eyes darted around the alley. Is, is my brain trying to get me killed? Bullies are cowards. Attack. 
Nearly a minute into their standoff, after a lot of bravado on both sides, something in Rowan snapped. With a burst of momentary courage and a high-pitched squeal, he swung the broken bottles over his head and he charged. By now, the muggers seemed to have finally had enough and fled. Rowan chased them for about 20 feet before the physical exertion wore him out. He stopped and bent over, panting. Let him go. You did well. Go home. Who is this? Rowan said in between gasps. But by then, the voice was silent. Thank you very much, guys. That was pretty awesome. Thank you, Wes. We're going to take about a 10 or 15 minute break, so please buy a drink and also buy books in the back. Remember to buy the door to the right, bring them up to get them signed, and then we'll be back in about 15 minutes with Nicole. So we'll see you in a couple minutes. All right. Hello, everybody. We're, got, we're, we're starting the second half of the program. Shh. Hello. Hi. I see there are huge gaps over there, which means people need to sit, can sit down there. Go on, come on, sit down, make yourself comfortable. And we'll start as soon as you sit down. Oh, no. I'm, I'm sorry. It's like, okay. Thank you. Welcome back to, KG, to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, as Matt said, this is always the third Wednesday of the month, so please come and join us whenever you're in town. Um, our next reader is Nicole Kernestace. Her writing has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies, including Best American Fantasy, Clockwork Venus 3 and 4, The Mammoth Book of Steampunk, The Mammoth Book of SF Stories by Women, Zombies, More Recent Dead, Apex and Fantasy Magazine. She's the author of Archivist Wasp, Desideria? Okay, sorry. You're good. Okay. Demon Lovers and Other Difficulties and The Winter Triptych. Please welcome Nicole. <laughs> I'm Nicole Cornerstace, and I'm not funny, so that is going to be a very hard act to follow. It was awesome. Yeah, you're also taller, so you should turn that light off. Oh, yeah, we got it. You're not David. There you go. You're good. That's true. I'm really not. All right, before I start, I have to be really obnoxious. I promised Mike Allen I would do this. I just have to extra plug this Clockwork Phoenix 5. If you have read this book, or you do read this book, and you like it, um, the story that it is that it started out as st was in Clockwork Phoenix 4. So there's a, a whole mythology in this book that is only touched upon in the book, but it is explored a lot. The whole short story is about it. So that's in Clockwork Phoenix 4. C.S.E. Cooney is in a number of these as well. And was it just one? I thought it was. Never mind. She knows better than I do. And 5 is probably going to be awesome, so please check it out and donate. And now I have done my duty for Yay. my gallons. Thank you. You guys are awesome. All right. 
I have to start you guys in the middle of a scene, and I'm sorry about that. So I'm going to give you a tiny bit of background, which is really just the back cover copy because I'm very original. Wasp's job is simple, hunt ghosts. And every year, she has to fight to remain archivist. Desperate and alone, she strikes a bargain with the ghost of a super soldier. She will go with him on his underworld hunt for the long-lost ghost of his partner, and in exchange, she will find out more about his pre-apocalyptic world than any archivist before her. And there is much to know. After all, archivists are marked from birth to do the holy work of a goddess. They're chosen, they're special, or so they've been told for 400 years. And I have to start you in the middle of a scene. Uh, Wasp has basically gone back to work after fighting to the death to retain her position as archivist. Um, she's already done part of the work she's supposed to do that day. Uh, she has to do the rest. The other ghosts were still milling around the crack in the rock, oblivious to her inspection. Most were ankle height or less, a few topped out around her knees or thighs. The tallest one she'd ever seen stood half as high as the ledge, but she'd only seen it once. Where it had gotten the strength for that trick from, she had no idea. She'd been an upstart then, and had kept well away. Thankfully, her thumb had stopped bleeding. Not that any of this batch of ghosts looked particularly threatening, but the blood had been known to bring it out in them, and things were weird enough today already, without adding a brawl on top. She'd bandage it. Meantime, she'd better get moving and distract them, just in case. Wasp rummaged in the backpack and came out with the little plastic box containing the salt lick. She set it down near the nearest of the ghosts, putting herself between it and the bloodstained pit of rock. The ghosts nosed forward, browsing at the air, one or two taking a step, then others following, and a scuffle erupted at her feet as the ghosts descended upon the dish. It still startled her how violently the salt drew them. The field notes said it was because they put the ghosts in mind of their former flesh, that to them it was the salt of sweat, of tears, of blood. It drew them because it made them remember being alive, made them hunger for everything they'd lost. She sketched the feeding ghosts in her notebook, her mind on the one she'd let slip through her fingers. It fascinated and depressed her, the way the ghosts moved, pacing their confines, sounding their boundaries back and forth. She saw much of herself in them, so she never watched for long. Today there were eight lone ones, and one looked to be what, a rare set of three. What with their ability to change size at will, it was always hard for her to tell the ages they'd been when they died. But by the way, two of them were nudging the third one on before them toward the salt lick, shielding it against the others jostling with what they most likely still thought of as their bodies. Wasp's best guess was that this used to be a family. As the salt took hold of them, their faces began to resolve. First the features grew, clay-like, then refining. Their hair grew out, straighter curly, then darkened or lightened from that dullish silver. Their eyes grew pupils, irises, and color slowly began to bleed in. Their heights and sizes began to stabilize, to calibrate against each other. It was a family, she could see now, or used to be. Two females and a tiny male, maybe three or four years old at time of death. It might be weeks before she found another child ghost so young, and she hated unfinished business. Keeping her eyes on the lapping ghosts, one hand reached behind her blind and felt around on the rock for the jar, while the other hand drew the harvesting knife free of its dog leather sheath at her belt. The knife was as long as her forearm, forged from some bright metal with a guard like a sword and a grip wrapped with the same dog leather as the sheath, and worth more than everything else in her little house combined. The shape of the blade was irregular, the hilt longer than the handle of a knife of similar size would be, and the point was unevenly tapered, as though the true point had broken off and this was what was left. But it was a ritual blade, not a weapon, and it served. When she readied it in position, the low autumn sun caught on the 16 dots of darker metal inset along the blade. 
the six larger ones the size of a wild blueberry, the ten smaller ones the size of a clover seed. Vaguely they, sorry, vaguely they described a wedge-shaped head, a jaw like a bear trap, a barrel chest, long legs, a lashing back-curved tail. Years ago, when she stood bloodied on the lakeshore above the previous archivist's cooling corpse and was presented with this blade, it was held out to her in such a way that the constellation on the blade caught and returned the light of the matching constellation in the sky. Catch keep. The harvesting knife felt strange in her hand now after two weeks without it, strange and yet as familiar as any part of her. She took a step toward the child ghost, and it turned. This part used to frighten her a little. The sea change in the ghost's eyes as the salt waylaid them. The look on their faces, like they woke from a nightmare to find that the monsters had followed them back out into their cozy beds. It had not taken her long to realize that the only monster they were seeing was her. The child ghost turned back to the salt lick. Its parent ghosts didn't seem to have noticed her at all. For the thousandth time, she reminded herself of what the field notes had taught her. That when she harvested a ghost, the ones it had traveled with wouldn't even know it was gone. No longer had the minds with which to understand the loss, or the hearts with which to feel it, any more than a hand feels the loss of a paired fingernail. That ghosts, essentially, were recorded information, rewinding, playing, rewinding, skipping and resuming, a resource to be tapped and nothing more. She wished she knew whether that were true. Knife in one hand, jar in the other, she was kneeling behind the child ghost, ready to slice it free and lit it up when she realized there was only the one jar. Only the one jar, which she was about to fill with the ghost that had died too young to be of any use to the field notes. It wouldn't be the first time she harvested a ghost she didn't have much hope of learning anything from, but usually it was not her first day on the job after half a month in recovery. She hadn't just lost a ghost she should have been bringing back to study, and she hadn't forgotten to bring enough damn jars with her on a hunt. And she didn't much relish the idea of coming back up here to try again tomorrow. If she took the child ghost for the midwife's niece, she would have made good on that particular duty, but otherwise she'd be returning to the catch-keep priest empty-handed, and that was not a place she wanted to be. But then she thought of the child ghost and wondered whether the midwife was right and it was possible for it to be reborn. She thought of the children she'd seen chasing each other around town and concluded that, as far as she could tell, children liked to be alive. It was her best guess that this one might have liked it too. She only hoped it wouldn't come back as a baby girl with Ketchkeep's mark on her cheek. She glanced at the child ghost, the parent ghosts, paring a fingernail, she said, either to them or to herself, and decided. A quick swipe in a ring around the child ghost with the harvesting knife and it shrank back to ankle height, weakened, free for the picking. She set down the knife, closed her hand around the ghost's waist, and pulled. It came free of the rock with a sound like uprooting weeds from mud, and she dropped it into the jar, looking anywhere but at its face. Where she found herself looking instead was into the eyes of the two parent ghosts. They had turned away from the salt lick and were staring at her with a look that she had seen rather often on the living, but very, very seldom on any ghost. Complete awareness. Utter hate. It froze her. These ghosts... These nothing little ghosts she disregarded actually had the strength to turn their backs on the salt without her say-so. It flew in the face of everything she knew. No, she whispered as her palms went clammy and her heart began to race. First, she'd released a ghost from two weeks' confinement, which was apparently beyond long enough to wither it like a leaf. But somehow the ghost had found the strength to remember, to search, to attempt to speak, to communicate with other ghosts if Wasp's observation was correct. And then there was the look in the parent ghost's eyes, 
which was now in the other's eyes too, as all the ghosts abandoned the salt to turn their faces upon her in unison, as though alerted by the sudden racket of her breath, the sudden stink of her fear. She'd heard warnings in the field notes about clusters of strong ghosts. One on its own meant a difficult catch, but a first-class specimen. More than one meant trouble. No catch at all, and maybe a dead archivist. It had happened before. She had a pretty good idea where this was going. It wasn't these ghosts that were the problem. Not any of the ones on the ledge. Not the one she'd lost. It was worse. Slowly, she set the jar down and gripped the harvesting knife, wondering if it would defend her. Eyes scanning the ledge for the ghost that she knew had to be there, somewhere. The one that brimmed over with so much careless, reckless strength that it was running over with power. It was shedding power, and the others were drinking it up by the roots like rain. Stupid. She'd been stupid. So focused on some little ghost's weird behavior that she didn't notice the bigger picture. Didn't even look for a bigger picture. Stupid and careless and too hung up on hope which had gotten her precisely nowhere thus far. And now, she was going to have to think fast if she didn't want to get herself pasted on the rock with all those notes she'd been so pleased with up till about 15 seconds ago. She could have kicked herself in the ass, save this mystery ghost the trouble. She couldn't see it. The thing was strong enough to slap her dead like a fly where she stood, and she couldn't see it. How could she not see it? It had to be there. Maybe she was rusty from being so long out of the field, but that didn't explain it. Without the salt to bring them into focus between worlds, the blood to give them strength enough to put their faces on and speak, most ghosts were too weak to do much of anything above ground, but this one, wherever it was, with this kind of strength radiating off of it, it should be huge. It should be, she didn't know, glowing or something. It should be obvious. Her hand was too sweaty now to have any, any kind of sure grip on the knife. Quickly, she passed it to her offhand, wiped her damp palm on her leg. For a fleeting second, a childish urge welled up in her, and she nearly shouted for help. But who could hear her? And hearing her, who would come? The matter of her death was between her and Ketchkeep. To the townspeople, she was the archivist. Faceless, nameless, a goddess's eyes and ears and hands. They honored her as they had honored those who'd come before her, and they would bury her likewise, and pull another archivist up after her, climbing on her corpse. On the ledge by her foot, the child ghost's jar was beginning to tip back and forth, teetering and writing. A thin wail, high and pure and so tiny, reached Wasp's ears. She should not have been able to hear it. It should not have been there to hear. Shit, she whispered, backing up a step. At the cry, the staring parent ghosts now broke from the salt lick entirely and bolted for the jar, swiping at the lid. There were sigils on that jar, and their hands should pass through. They did not pass through. There was a melodious clinking as the lid rolled away off the ledge and was lost, and from the jar the child ghost emerged into its parents' arms. They bore it away between them, and for the first time in three years of hunting and harvesting, Wasp could actually see the oozing silver trail, half snail slime, half brine, that a ghost left behind from where it had been cut free. Wasp had seen strong ghosts before. She'd seen a ghost as tall as a tree, a ghost bigger than her house, a ghost that had emerged from the rock, still wreathed in the live fire that had killed it, which ignited where it touched and singed her backpack as she'd leapt away. She'd read the stories in the field notes, the cautionary tales of archivists who got too cocky and were found in unrecognizable piles, bones cracked to get at the salt in their marrow, silvery footprints leading away. She'd been punched in the face by a ghost, nearly trampled by another, had a few try to drink her dry of blood like something out of a story from the before. But she'd never seen anything like this. 
There was something behind her. She whirled, and there was nothing there. Invisible? She thought wildly. Can they even... She stood a moment, scanning the ledge, her heart banging at her ribs like it wanted out. Nothing, she whispered. The sound of her voice comforted her. She said it louder. It was nothing. She turned back and was lifted bodily from the ledge and slammed up against the wall. The air flew out of her with an ugly sound. For a second she hung there, too stunned both in her muscles and her mind to fight. This ghost was stronger than her, stronger than the Ketchkeep priest, stronger than the shrine dogs who were bred to reach 200 pounds of solid muscle, their heads as high as her shoulder. She couldn't get it in focus. Had she hit her head that hard? It was still holding her pinned against the rock face of Execution Hill. It would have made much more sense if it wasn't a ghost at all, if someone had followed her up here, someone from town who had finally decided to try their luck at doing her in. Maybe a friend of that last poor dead upstart, wanting revenge, or a friend of one of next year's, looking to better someone's chances. It wasn't like she lacked for enemies. But there were the other ghosts, all turning toward it, half yearning, half terror, and there was a sort of dark light rising off of it like steam feeding back and back along the rock where the other ghosts drew it up, shuddering. And anyway, since when had anyone in town been an upstart's friend? Start talking, said the ghost, its voice perilously calm. Wasp's mouth fell open. If this wasn't already wholly beyond the realm of her experience, it certainly was now. I... What? The ghost stared at her. She stared back. Choose or help her. She was about to die, and some part of her mind had detached itself to take field notes. Male specimen. Died young. Not all that much older than me, really. Weird voice. Gone rusty like it doesn't get used much. Some kind of uniform. Dark boots. Haven't seen it before. Gray eyes. Angry-looking, mostly. Something else in there. Hurt? Shocked? Down deep. Can't really make it out. They don't look like ghost eyes. The ghost narrowed them at her. Clarify. It sounded like the catch-keep priest when Wasp was halfway between a failed escape attempt and a whipping. Only much, much worse. It was now or never. She slashed up hard with the harvesting knife and the ghost let go. She tucked her legs to hit the ledge rolling and came up blade first, strangely disoriented and shaking her head to clear it. To her satisfaction, there was a long tear in the ghost's coat sleeve, issuing a steady runnel of silver. The ghost either didn't notice or didn't care. Off behind it, one or two of the other ghosts, full to bursting with that strange dark light, exploded into silver sparks like a dry scorchweed blossom stomped. The others scattered back into the rock. Back off, she shouted at it. Her voice shook, but her knife hand did not. That's not a warning I give twice. The ghost advanced a step and froze there. Its image seemed to stutter somehow in mid-stride, flickering. When it spoke again, its tone of voice had changed. We're leaving right now. Wasp was reaching her limit. She burst out laughing. The hell we are. The ghost just gave her that wordless stare. She thought she'd, she'd, thought she'd seen Hauteur on the Ketchkeep Priest before. That was nothing. Nothing at all to this. She calculated. Her chances didn't look good. There was the salt lick and there was the jar. The jar whose lid had gone over the edge and was now 200 feet below, clay shards among scree. The salt lick which she'd have to get through the ghost to reach. Even with all her tools at her disposal and uninjured, could she bind this thing? She was beginning to sorely doubt it. The plan changed, said the ghost. Get up. Get up. Look, I don't know where you think you are, she said carefully, or who you think I am, but... The ghost took another step. Wasp knew the look in its eyes. It was the look she gave upstarts on that final approach before they came under her blade. She threw her body aside as the ghost strode toward her, nearly tipping herself over the ledge. 
The harvesting knife came up bloodied and so did her forearm. She hissed annoyance between her teeth and began sidling around, trying to interpose her body and blade between the salt lick and the ghost. It wasn't much of a chance, but it was what she had. They circled like brawlers. She couldn't see this ending well. She was two steps in a blind grab from the salt lick when the ghost drew a blade of its own. Wasp flung herself back out of immediate range, her mind racing. This ghost could bring things through with it? Apparently so, for it was now coming at her with a sword, and it had a gun on its belt as well. It was too much. It was beyond too much. And she wouldn't make it to the salt lick at this rate, not without losing limbs on the way. If, that is, the sword could cut her. She wasn't sure, but she knew where her guess was going. She backed another step, which took her up against the wall. Her eyes fell on the blood welling up out of the gash on her arm, then to the blood still on the harvesting knife. It wasn't a weapon. She'd never used it as a weapon before. She'd never had to really fight a ghost before, sure as hell not like this anyway. And to stab this ghost now, with her blood on the blade, was a ragpicker's gambit if ever she'd seen one. Wasp went to rip the blade on her sleeve and stopped. She was thinking of those lesser ghosts all exploded, and how they'd drunk up this ghost's shed power until it had overloaded them. Thinking this ghost had to have a limit too, wondering where it was, whether she could reach it. It would have looked like a worse idea if she had anything else to choose from, short of jumping off the ledge with a prayer. However, the ghost's reach with the sword was easily twice what hers was with the harvesting knife, and Wasp had serious doubts about getting inside it now, let alone getting the ghost inside her reach. Still, she had to try. Without warning, she dropped to the ground under the swing of the ghost's blade and stabbed her own bloodied knife down through the top of the ghost's boot until the point hit the porous rock of the shelf and wedged there. She must have hit her head harder than she'd thought because as the knife came down, she thought she saw something for a split second, there and gone before it could be identified, darting from her mind like a fish the net had missed. A shudder went through the ghost as the holy metal and the blood took hold and she pulled the knife free, blinking in awe. She hadn't thought it would work. It couldn't last long, a few seconds at most, and Wasp didn't want to stick around to wait for it to wear off, the ghost's awful strength to come raging back, her choice either fighting a losing battle or fleeing down the mountainside like a whipped dog, which wasn't any choice at all. In one motion, she swiped the salt lick, dropped her hip to sweep the ghost's legs out from under, planted a knee on its chest and pressed the salt to its mouth, grinding it in with the heel of her hand. She scattered more around it where it lay. Jar or not? Blood was blood, salt was salt, the knife was the knife, and she'd hung her hopes on worse before and lived. By blood and salt, I bind you, she gasped. You will follow. The effect was instantaneous. The ghost lunged at her and came up short, collared by the empty air. Wasp crouched a few paces back, knife at the ready, for all the good it would do if the last trick up her sleeve had failed. Slowly, slowly, something changed in the ghost's face and it began to see her clearly. It was drawing itself up now to its full height, looking at her the way she would look at a snake in her path if she couldn't identify it as one that might bite her or one she could eat. Wasp was amazed to realize that just as she had suddenly been able to see the goo the child ghost had bled from its salt from its cut roots, she now could see, could also see, the way the salt and blood eddied around this ghost's feet carried on the current it exuded. It didn't thrash at the shackles, didn't draw on her again. It stood like a stone and Wasp hated herself for being humbled by some dead thing's dignity. It was powerful, so powerful, but she had caught it, it was hers, until she said otherwise, it would stay. When she thought of all those unanswered questions in the field notes, what answers she might glean from this specimen, she felt a little dizzy. So what if she'd lost the other ghost? She could toss her notebook off the ledge right now and it wouldn't matter. 
Archivists had gone up against powerful ghosts like this one and been broken against them or fled. If any had captured one successfully, there was no record of it in the field notes. After three years of observation and study and guesswork, here was a ghost she could learn from. It was like nothing she'd experienced, nothing she'd even known was possible. It had been a long time since she'd seen anything that looked so much like a way out. She may have had a long fight and a longer heel, as the Ketchkeep priest had so helpfully pointed out. And maybe she was starting to lose her touch, as she'd, as she'd suspected from the number of wounds the last batch of upstarts had given her. But after this, she wouldn't be showing them a weakness. She wouldn't, been sh she wouldn't be showing them a has-been archivist, rusting to garbage in her little house on the hill. She would be showing them one of the most potentially useful discoveries that any archivist had ever made in 400 years and counting. She would be showing them something so huge, so important, that she might be able to trade it for her freedom. She would... So I take it you are in the business of hunting ghosts, the ghost was saying. <laughs> it watched her levelly, its eyes unfathomable. The pain and shock was gone from them, Wasp saw, gone or quashed. Excellent. Then I could use your help in finding one. If the rock of the hill itself had spoken to her directly, it might have caught her less off guard. This ghost could see her, it could speak to her. It had come looking for her. It wasn't possible, it couldn't be possible. But there the ghost was, staring at her, not through her, at her, waiting for a reply. I think, she said slowly, we might be able to come to an agreement. Thank you. There's still books left. Come and buy some books and have the author sign them. Have another drink. Uh, we don't have to be out of here right away, and we'll be heading over eventually to the new restaurant, and I can't remember the name of it, but you can follow us. Bye, and see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.